Hello, Path Folk, and welcome to After Party 16 with Find the Path. Hopefully, you know why you're here. Otherwise, um, so I don't know what you're doing. It's a real weird place to start. <laughs> it is a weird place to start. First time listeners, welcome. Go back to the beginning and start again. <laughs> We're going to start by recapping what's been going on these last three episodes with Rick. Yeah. We're, uh, we're changing up our format a little bit, for those of you familiar with the After Party thing. We're always striving to improve our ways of doing things. We've had some suggestions back and forth, so we're going to give that a shot. So yeah, we're going to start with our recap, which this is going to be the re- recap over episodes 46, 47, and 48, of which I think were honestly some of our most exciting episodes recently. Traumatizing. Uh, I was going to say most uh, life-altering for some of us. Yes. Let's see. Episode 46 was the uh, vast majority of that episode was taken up with the fight against old eye taker. Uh, yeah. The battle in the ancient courtroom. Yeah, Sudi's Phoenix-esque attempt to uh, you know, get I, off I, the... I tried. It's one of those things where, like... You it, guys it, did it, mount a good defense. Yeah, we were I mean, so close. We, try, we tried really hard. It's one of those... It's kind of hard to defend when Sudi's interaction with the law was being found guilty of drug running, basically. Which was not, like, a false accusation. No, no, <laughs> it's not. So it's I, I highly doubt they would have had a defense that wouldn't... Because I, I'm pretty sure he pled guilty if he had been given the option. I don't know how Wati's legal system works. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, we had actually done some investigation and had time to, like, <laughs> prepare for it yeah. so yeah. not having the time to this, prepare for it is like Ugh. this was a kangaroo court it was yeah, yeah this <laughs> no, was it, not it, even a real court this was from a guy from like several ages ago yeah no it definitely was <laughs> so it, it definitely i was i was actually going to i was going to call it a kangaroo court but i realized that's you know Sudi wouldn't know what that uh well, yeah. what kangaroos are so yeah um <laughs> we yeah, got so. half of the people like free to go getting half of them off yeah it was a it was, it pretty, was pretty good um yep. the, the hardest part is when he's like oh but they're trespassing because they don't have their papers and i'm like ah <laughs> Like, I, I don't know enough about the legal system. Like, I'm not like a cleric of Avatar who would have been like, no, you see here in this statute, something, something, something. So it was kind of a hard, it's hard to role play it also because I don't know what T's legal system, but also even harder because like Sudi doesn't really know how the law works. Which is funny because you're lawful. No, I'm, so like I'm lawful code. to a code. I'm not lawful to the law itself. So it's, it's very you, different. You are extraordinarily strict, dedicate to the practices and theologies of your faith. Yep, exactly. So, so that, that doesn't include like course. Like punch and, your fist through the chest of somebody robbing from a grave. But Yeah, so it, it doesn't include a, a legal training to understand. Um, and again, Sudi's reading not super good. I'd imagine reading like any kind of legal text would be just like hard to even like, because it's hard to understand even if you do read perfectly good English. You know, it's, or, it's kind of the interesting thing where paladins are required to be lawful good but they don't actually get the knowledges that would tell them what the laws are yep <laughs> that's so, like an oversight yeah a little bit i had an interesting behind the screens thing to talk about with this one and wanted to get some of y'all's opinions on some things so starting with the behind the screens thing i want to read you guys a quick paragraph from the book that i think is very interesting pertaining towards this whole situation it states that the pcs can fight satin ray and his bailiffs but old eye taker has another vulnerability his insatiable need to mete out his sick form of justice which is the driving force behind the skeleton's animation. Rather than fight the undead judge, the PCs can defend themselves legally in his court. During the trial, they must attempt a series of five skill checks opposed by the judge. They can choose from bluff, diplomacy, intimidate, knowledge local, or perform oratory, 
or sense motive. Any character can attempt one of the skill checks, but each skill check can be attempted only once. Mm. A PC may confer with the council to allow his allies to aid another. If they succeed at three of these skill checks, so Tenray and his bailiffs crumble to dust, which does oh. not trigger the bailiff's death burst ability. Oh, You sad. guys got shockingly close. Did we get two? Oh. You did manage to get two. Wow. It was that last bluff check. Yeah, no, that's exactly yeah. what it was. Yeah, we Well, and the, the problem off. is they're all opposed checks, and of course the guy is really good at basically all of those skills. Sure. sure yeah. So yeah. this is another one of those occasions where every party doesn't need a bard, but every party appreciates having one. Yeah, we yeah. had a bard up there to defend. Yeah, yeah. it's true. Hello, so. friends. Welcome to Hello. my court today. <laughs> oh, you said perform oratory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, But you can only make it once. So I do want to do a quick roundtable, and we'll start with Jordan. But I'm going to assume this is the first time a character of yours has been maimed. Uh, absolutely has. Yeah, I, I've been playing for five years. I've had characters die. I've not had a character be maimed in any way, shape, or form. So this yeah. is the first. What are your thoughts about this? I'm kind of two minds myself <sighs> where it's the mechanic, the mechanical penalty and everything. Man, that is rough. But it's also a really interesting role-playing ability to build a character. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where, like, the penalties, off. honestly, I thought they were going to be far worse. Yeah. So whenever I got the penalties from Rick, I was like, oh, a negative four perception with sight-based things, minus two uh, ranged attack penalty. That could be a lot worse. I remember distinctly whenever you the eye was ripped out, um, I kind of was surprised that it wasn't as bad. Um, and it is one of those things where, like, you're right. It's a there are certain kind of moments in in an adventure path that are defining moments, I think, for characters. And the the thing with Sudi is like I've been I wouldn't say stoical with him, but he's been kind of focused on his mission and like, but he has a lot of insecurities, especially when it comes to relationships. And so, like, you know, his first reaction isn't Oh gosh, my eye is gone. It's Oh no! What is Idris gonna think? And yeah, um, I've I've heard that a lot from people who've had you know maiming injuries in real life. That you know, there's always that that kind of fear in the back of your mind of the, is the person you love gonna stay with you with that? Because there are, there are stories yeah. of people who don't yeah. who just can't handle it. Those people and suck. Yes, but it's also like it's one of those kind of fears that I know I've had also because I've had that thought before. Of, yeah, you know how would I how would I handle that and. So I kind of channeled that a little bit, but it is a really defining characteristic for Sudi now that, you know, yes, he has one eye and uh, we're not at the level where that's, yeah, but it's something that you can't just fix at higher levels. If, if this had happened and we had access to regeneration, it would be like, oh, that's darn inconvenient. Um, you know, hopefully we've got give, enough. Give me till 13th level. Yeah. Hopefully, <laughs> yeah. And then it's like, oh, hopefully we have enough, uh, you know, just get that fixed tomorrow for you. I've always found that kind of an amusing element to it, that it's easier to raise someone from the dead than regenerate a limb. It is. I mean, mind you, the body has to be almost pristine for raised dead to work. I think it's a mechanic thing at that point. People are probably going to die before they're really going to have to worry about regeneration, to be perfectly honest. Unless you play by those critical rules where you... uh... A but, critical will like take a limb. But or most people don't do that. We don't use those rules. And this is the first yep. time in how many years that we've all been playing together where it's been like, oh crap, we need a, we need a regenerate spell. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I, that and <laughs> well, that and like my dice just were not agreeing with me because I mean, yeah, I I'm getting held down by like three skeletons and that I didn't feel like that should have been that difficult, but my dice just were not obeying. Because yeah, he, you know, he had to completely pin right. No, the mechanics specifically state that the target must be pinned, helpless, or willing. Who's willing? <laughs> Who's willing for that? Nobody wants that. I don't know. 
So yeah, no, I, I thought it was a very it was a very interesting encounter. I remember reaching out to Crystal Fraser, who wrote the book, and just mentioning that we were running through this, and her only response back to me was, uh, "Good luck. Hopefully, no one loses an optical organ." <laughs> Goodness, yeah. So. <laughs> that was on Twitter, wasn't it? Yeah. It's also one of those fights that it may not have been as bad if it, all four of us had been there, but because we split the party, I think we, we kind of... This is this is finally the time that we've paid the piper for all the times we split the party. Um, yeah. I mean, Citra came pretty close to paying the piper when yeah. <laughs> she was at her fight. Yeah, so, so. I think that now both of us... Now both, we've done this, like, what, three or four times now, and it's it's finally come back and, and we've had to pay for it, so... You're stronger um, together. Yeah, I mean, all that all that saying, though, like, I mean, you know, Sudi said this, and I agree with losing an eye to save, what was it, 12 people? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that'd be a worthy sacrifice in real life, just as it was in the game. So, yeah. you know, I'm not going to, he's not going to really be too terribly shook up about it, especially because Idris obviously was like, this is fine. Yeah. So, yeah, so, I mean, you know, it's a defining characteristic now. We've got the whole eye patches thing, so um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, he'll, he'll recover from it. So following that, going into uh, episode 47. That was a lot a of life exposition. Sudi had received another love note. So mm-hmm. uh, Yeah, the, I still have no great theories for that, but I'm kind of like... I'm uh, I'm looking forward to the reveal on that. That's yeah, because it's say. like, these are, these, are, we, these are creepy. But we have a fan with a theory that it's the sarcophagus that tried to eat you. He <laughs> misses you. Oh, no. I think it's one of the dark ones, the dark people. The dark folk? Yeah, dark folk. I, I'm I hoping they'd be it's... Having a hard, unless they've got some sort of passage that the fated and everybody else doesn't know about. I don't, it's possible. Be real hard for them to be getting in and out of the necropolis right now. I don't know what their abilities might be, but yeah, they could send a little bird with a note and put it in your in your room. It wouldn't have I to guess, be them. I mean, I guess maybe, yeah. but because we never identified the person in the dark clothing from the house of Bentheru, right? Yep. No. No. I'm, so. My theory now is that it's one of the dark folk, but I don't know if that means that they caught a glimpse of me and were like, "Man, that is an attractive there." Cat folk. Yeah. <laughs> Look at that handsome cat. Yep. We got our like mission. Yeah, and so you yep. you guys got a chance to to talk with Septi and Shepus and learned what Shepus's failsafe plan was. So both you as players and you as your characters, as your opinions may differ between your characters and you as players. Like what what do you guys kind of feel about that? About Shepus's I f- feel like if we can't goal. succeed then go for it because it's not getting any better the, needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few <laughs> yeah if it's if it's wati or the entire nation of Osirian, it's wati <laughs> yes i think Sagira's more inclined to feel like everyone she cares about is here and she doesn't care about anyone she doesn't know or care about like she's not like benevolent in that way like she cares she's really messed up about sudi losing an eye because she feels like she failed protecting him She's really messed up with the idea of like the girls at the Bastet Temple being killed. She could care less if some random pharaoh dies. She could care less if some random person she's never met in Tefu dies. So for her, if you can't save the city, it's what's even the point? We can't save the city. Then obviously the gods have failed us and nothing even matters. So she's not in the uh, let's sacrifice Wati for these other people. We'll only be okay with... Seppish doing what he's doing if we fail in the necropolis. That's the last stand chance. I just don't think that what he's doing would even work. Yeah, is, I think it'd be a short term. He has in the past done things. They're not good choices. So he's kind of conflicted about this because like he respects Shepis and, and believes that he would have given this a lot of thought. But you're kind of right. Like Up until we we fought the psychopomps ourselves, he, he definitely thinks that there's a better way. Um, that's why you know he's agreeing to go into the 
city himself. But it's also one of the things where his his tenets of defeat the undead almost at any cost, yeah. as shown by you know his recent uh, loss of an eye. It means that like yeah, it it would be terrible. Like I mean, the the psychopomps in the city would be terrible, but it may stop the larger existential threat as well. So I I look at it more in terms of the. Yes, there would be some people that would die, but it maybe less people die than would die if the undead escape and run, you know, rampant through the town. So it, it's a conflicting argument. It's, from it's kind of the being, idea of a quarantine. I yeah, mean, I mean, for, you, know, you accept that these people are going to die because of the sickness already, but it keeps the whole from being, you know, chop off a foot to save the body. Except yeah. you could get all these people out of the town. Yeah, that's the thing that like that's the that's the thing that's they're like, not kind of, sick. It's not spreadable that way. Well, that's the the thing that I would hope that they would do is that they would evacuate the town. But knowing kind of, I didn't think mention that. thing I would be saying is, well, it's what maybe an hour across the river to On and Tefu. Why are we not grabbing those soldiers and bringing them in? You know, that because seems like a much more Because the more people thing. that die to this, the more undead that get raised. Yeah. Then why are we quarantining a town instead of having these people be evacuated? That because is most of the people wouldn't doing. leave their dead. It's the Osirian mindset is that for them, the dead are so important. Segura's father wouldn't leave. He wouldn't leave his wife there when she's going through the process of this, wouldn't abandon their crypts. Most of the people in Wati would rather stay and fight. It's only if the panic level gets so high that I think the highest panic level is literally mass exodus. Yeah. It feels like if there's no one guarding you from the undead, that's where that panic level goes. Most likely. <laughs> But for a majority of the people in the city, they look at it and just go, well, there's not this big problem. That's because the voices, I mean, even for all of you guys, while you've done a lot to help the city, the voices of the spire have been taking the brunt of this this entire time. Well, I imagine they're trying to prevent a panic, so they may not even be telling them how, like everybody, how bad it is inside of the Well, yeah, because if people start leaving, then the voices of the spire, because they don't have the city guard presence anymore to deal with the undead, so... They lose their food resources from all the farmers that are bringing food into the city. Looting and rioting is going to start the moment that people start evacuating and all of the guards are already taken up with battling the undead. The idea is to kind of keep things contained as long as possible, business as usual. Additionally, Septi didn't agree with him. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and Sudi definitely respects Septi probably even more than Shepis because um, she's definitely never led him wrong. It's a very stark contrast, and I actually really appreciated mm-hmm. what they put in the book because both of them are complicated characters. I actually really like them as NPCs, where Nikat is he's the bastard son of this noble family that believes that he has this legacy that not only does he want to live up to, he feels he is burdened mm-hmm. with yeah. living up to the legacy of his ancestor. And because of his, his own personal bloodline, the noble families of the city and everything, no one's ever recognized him. He's been forced to do this on his own because his own family doesn't really recognize him. Yeah, but Um, I think his desire to prove himself is leading to rash decisions because Citra's mindset is that any life lost is not good, period. Mm -hmm. Like she, she would walk straight into the necropolis if it meant protecting anybody. That's just kind of the type of person she is. I definitely think that maybe if they'd been more proactive or Shepis had been more willing to let others help him, he's all about the spire and you, we can do this and blah, blah, blah. And it's like... That you need professionals. Yeah. And I, and I think that's where his detriment is, is that Citra's like, well, we were here to help and you didn't want our help. Well, that also you falls know. back to all these foreign adventurers who are going to go in there and disrespect all the dead and everything, which but again is a very big for yeah. But the tenet. four of us aren't foreigners. 
Yeah. We're yeah, all of Sirianni. It's the, it's always been the law that only the spire goes in there because of how dangerous it is. And the adventurers going in and stirring up crap made things worse. So sure. he doesn't want more people going in there. You also have to look at it from, it's almost one of those in-world, out-of-world views. Where out of the world, as all of you sitting here going, well, we're playing this adventure path and we're the freaking heroes guy. Just get the heck out of our way so that we can mm-hmm. do our job. But from in-world, it is... Four people saying, well, we really had no experience until a week ago adventuring together. And we've got a priest who's not the most powerful priest in the city. We've got a rogue who isn't necessarily the best rogue in the city. We've got a only recently brought back into the voices of the spire person and a street thief and bouncer at a local temple. Yep. And the four of us will be able to do what your hundred members of the Voices of the Spire can't. But it, like, again, the, the Spire is, like you said, doing They're the crowd the control. Whereas we were like, there's a specific thing we we're after because his little ritual, as powerful as it may be. It may not even work. It may not solve the problem. So then you're going to go in there, you're going to kill all the undead. And then if more people die... And we don't know if the cop holes would just get stronger. Then it just spread. Then there's more coming. So there, it's not a solution to the problem. It's treating a symptom, not. Yeah, but I, not I definitely, a I definitely see what Rick's saying. Like source. we are not the Navy SEALs, but we're not trained professionals to work behind enemy lines and all that stuff. So yeah. the idea that every day tons and tons of your voices are dying and you're not willing to accept help from outsiders because they're not because as good as voices. Because he doesn't want to add to more of the dead bodies. Well, That's no, another he, thing. The whole too. city is going to be dead otherwise. But like he did accept the help. <laughs> Yeah. He wanted the help, but not in that necropolis. He accepted the help begrudgingly and gave us like little errands to do. It was not him. More, it was more Septi. Yeah. And that, that is the interesting contrast, though, because Septi, and it's it's interesting because they talk about how she's almost looked down on on the council because Septi has no noble blood whatsoever. I love that. Yeah. She's a commoner brought to her position of power purely through her own faith. Good. But at the same time, she is she is the voice of wisdom. Yeah, and it's also one of those things where, like, she come, having come from kind of a more uh, coming from a more humble birth, she I think has a probably a greater empathy for the plight of the city. Yeah. Whereas, like, Shepes seems to be much more about you know these are my people, I have to do something. You know, the worst thing you can do in any of these situations like this is just feel helpless. Mm. So I think he has to feel like he's doing something. Even if what it is is not ideal or, or optimal, it does feel though that like the ritual that he wants to perform is like a desperate last ditch effort. Like I don't, I don't think he would want to go to that just like initially. No, I think well, he he's, kind of, that wasn't his, been several days with all this is going on. Yeah, so I feel like he's he's run, he's running out. He's seeing a lot of his. It, his it was the second pulse. Yeah. At first, it's like, oh, this is just happening once. They are diminishing. But if they keep getting up and they keep going, it's it where every soldier lost is another soldier for the other Which side. Which is, I think, why mm-hmm. he's been so resistant to accept help from the adventurers. Because the more people that die, that's why he wanted the undead in the living city and all the errands we were doing contained. Yep. So people aren't dying in the living city, adding to the undead horde. So we're still trying. He's trying to keep all the undead in the necropolis. Onyris doesn't want to see the city burn, but if it meant saving the rest of the country, then Onyris is willing to accept that loss. But if we, if, but if you don't, yeah, my thing is, is if you don't get to the source of the problem, like his thing is only about destroying the undead, but it doesn't necessarily stop. No, he stop wants the, to use the ritual to get the psychopomps in to clear out the undead so the spire can go in and find the mask. He but it's not this, just undead in there. Yeah, it's not just undead. That's the only problem. I don't know if he even thinks about that at this point. Like, he probably just figures if there was anybody alive in there, they're dead by now. Well, the Lamia could just be killed by Sanko Pomp, I guess, but... Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I, see, I don't, that's the thing is, like, we've now learned that there's, like, there's Lamia in there, and there's Dark Folk, and there's, like, living beings that are habitating in there. 
But I don't know if like the voices necessarily know about it. I mean, Tetmanib seems to have. Well, no, Shepis like, was the one that told us about the Lamia, so he yeah, knows. Yeah, but not, trying, the, yeah. not the dark ones. They've been though. trying to deal with the Lamia for years. The dark ones, though, that was Tetmanib's. Yeah, because they could they could have been pretty useful in finding things in the city, probably. And then that's just two people's knowledge. So, like, is there anything else in there that would have any other things we may stumble upon that could be, uh, you know, allies? There or, may be a there may be an interesting development of that in the next upcoming episodes. Hmm. Ooh. Ooh, little teaser there. Yeah, fortunately, you guys did manage to convince him to allow you to make your way in. Sudi got reinstated. Oh, you yeah, You guys boy. did a little uh, shopping thing. You talked to the Viper, found out he had a son. Oh, Viper. Uh, his son's also in there, so. I honestly don't think he cares so much about his son as getting his son getting out with whatever his son was sitting there to find. He might care about his son That's in possible. one of those like weird mob boss kind of ways. It, yeah, yeah it's, it's, he's my son. Yeah, it's hard to tell because he also like plays that game with Sudi of like, oh, but Sudi, we're family, and it's like, no, we're you not. I. Yeah, like family, so. Sudi. Yeah, so I don't know if it's like that's the thing is you can't ever tell if it's contrived because this is a resource that he wants back or mm-hmm. if it's he's trying to. I, it may also be that he's trying to not show weakness by not showing how worried he is for his son because that's a common. Because he knows where exactly where they should be, which is either means that was the random lottery site that they got assigned and they were playing by the rules, which I doubt. Yeah. Or the Viper sent them into that place to find a specific thing. And the Viper wants the thing, not so much his son. Well, he's got to know that we're not letting them have a thing or taking everything that they have. Yeah, there's kind of a curious correlation, actually, between the Viper and Segura there with what Jessica was actually just saying, where Segura's concern is the people that she cares about and the the rest of the city can burn. Yep. And it's kind of the same thing with the Viper, where it's quite possible that the Viper actually cares about this person. Doesn't really care about anyone else necessarily, but it might just be, this is the one person I care about. Yep. And everything else can burn. Because even evil people can love people. Yeah, but I just, I don't get that from the Viper. The way that Rick's portrayed him, I don't think he gives two craps about anybody but himself. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's hard. To, he's hard to read. I think yeah. that's what the, the mean, real problem is with him. How do you get that powerful without getting a good poker face? Yeah, but everybody has a weakness of some of some type. If it's not substances or gambling or something, it's usually people. Yeah, and there's there's always. I mean, it's a it's a fundamental human need to have a connection with somebody. So I yeah. I can absolutely believe that he has has had at least some type of a connection to somebody. It may yeah. not actually be his son. He he's got to care about somebody you know, or something. Yeah, yeah so. the thing he sent his son in there to get. And he's playing the son <laughs> card on us because we have empathy. Yeah, no, that's why I was you like, that, that's why I even you know started that episode with, did you really just play the son card on me? Yep. Well, we'll just search the son. He's not getting whatever thing he wants if that's what he wants. Well, it's also one of those things where like, we'll get the truth when we actually meet the son. Because if it's like, oh my God, my dad sent you. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Then maybe he does care about him. But if, it, if it's... Wait, what? My dad? My dad? Seriously? <laughs> then then we'll know, okay, this was all a lie. And we've, you know, we've, been, we've been had. Maybe he's one of those tough love dads. Yeah, it's, all, it's one of those things for Sudi personally. Like, Sudi's going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Sudi did have eight years with a, with a loving father. And he's going to hope that that's the case he but regardless he's just going to do it because it's saving a living person so yeah. you know standing up against the undead saving the living uh, is still part of his tenants so he's, he's going to do it regardless he didn't need to get paid or anything to do it but it is one of those things where i like sudi feels like he's being manipulated and he definitely doesn't trust the viper to not have ulterior motives that's fair yeah and then by the end of that episode you guys had uh wrote a poem yeah you wrote a poem together after having met up with the 
See, I thought he was going to have me write the poem down and then me go to deliver it to her. I didn't think he was going to keep the poem. So now we don't know how this is going to play out and it upsets me. I know, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I want to I see. We're, hopefully we get back, you know, we save the city and yeah, we get back and like there's the two of them talking quietly in a corner and we're like, yes. We can always go find the Akinti boy that invited us to the party and be like, hey, what's up with your sister? Is she dating a guy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you get a love note by any chance? She's kind of, that's kind of a weird random tidbit. Basra Akenti is a lawyer who's going to do lawyer stuff with the right hand of the pharaoh. Like that is such a weird tidbit of plot that feels like it's somehow connected or, but I can't quite figure out how it could be connected. Yeah, but it feels it's like come foreshadowing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's also one of those back. great things that Rick does where he's like making these characters just come to life because suddenly we've like, we've known this guy like 20 minutes and we're already like, dude. We're friends. Let's go help you with stuff. Like and like and that's like something like this. Rick does a really good job of making us care a lot about the NPCs because I even was like, oh, but you like this girl, man. I want to help you out, even though Sudi like has no capability of helping. Like, I'm still rooting for you guys. Uh, well, first off, thank you. It's almost the Aladdin kind of story though, where it's just yeah. oh, okay. He's the commoner that does nothing but runs this river barge and yeah. then like had a deep conversation with this noble woman this one time and then just kind of like fell madly in love with this this complicated person that he could have these intelligent conversations with. A little forbidden love. Speaking here. of NPCs and love, when Falta was talking to Citra about his father that was lost in the desert, blah, oh, blah, yeah. blah, I wrote a post-it note and I sat it next to Jordan that says, is Falta going to end up being Segura's half-brother? Because my father was also in the desert. But he no, was adventuring in the desert. I don't, I don't, I think his father was a pathfinder who came down here to do a pathfinder thing and yeah. got lost into the desert. Yeah. If anything, I think it, because he's a follower of Cade and Kayleen, it's going to be a connection to Sudi. Possibly, yeah. Maybe. You know. I, I was like, as soon as Sudi was maybe he wasn't lost in the, in the desert. desert. Maybe Sudi's <laughs> adopted father was yeah. Falto's actual father. Well, yeah, yeah and it could also. See, that's where my brain went. <laughs> I thought, see, when you passed me that note, I was like, is are you meaning for me because of the Caden connection? Yeah, see, I would see that before. I could see it with because then Falto would be a Suli because your dad's where you get the Suli from. You don't have Falto's. to always. It's kind of like with Azamar. Yeah. Just it's kind of a thing that pops up randomly in your. Yeah, bloodline. it just it's in your bloodline, but it may skip a generation or two. So. Right. No, I would see. I, I would think there'd be a connection with Sudi before Sagira. To be honest, yeah. but yeah, it's it, but, yeah because it's one of those things. Like technically, he wouldn't be because I'm adopted. It wouldn't actually be like biological, but yeah, it could it could be like there's like a, a family connection somehow. That would be kind of cool. That we would did be decide. That his dad was a. He came, he wasn't lost in the desert at all. He was actually in a city and could have sent a message at any time. Well, it could be but like we don't he lost know his how memory long or whatever. He went you know. off into the desert, and we don't know how what the Pathfinder record said. Maybe he was on a long term mission. We don't know how long Falto's father's been dead either. Yeah, or if he's even dead. Yeah, you just said he got true. lost in the desert. Yeah, sure, we he might could find be alive. him still. Because he could have been on like a, there's a got to be a Pathfinder Lodge, what, in Sothis? Somewhere down here? I believe there is one in Sothis. Yeah, so I mean, he could have been stationed to the Pathfinder Lodge down here and been down here for a a long time before he disappeared. But uh, how long have have Pathfinders been allowed to, I guess they've always had kind of like a special, they have to get permission, but they've had like kind of special dispensation to do some exploration. The the Osirian tombs outside of the cities uh, were opened up for exploration in 4707, so about seven years before the events in Mummy's Mask. Okay, so he could have been stationed down there to go 
you know, do some of the dig and sites. And well, the Pathfinders don't necessarily always obey those rules. That's what I was about to anyway. say. <laughs> that, yeah, I mean, I was, I was skipping over that part, but yeah. So. They they may have gone in there regardless. No, and it's actually, uh, I'd hinted about Falto's past with the Pathfinders once before. In one of the previous episodes, he mentioned just in passing uh, his studies and what he what he learned at the yeah. Grand Lodge in Absalom. But this was the first time that he confirmed any of that connection or yeah. the fact that he was an ex-Pathfinder after being Yeah, yeah. yeah but we yeah. don't. We we don't have a definite timeline for any of this stuff, so until we have that, it's all just kind of speculation. Well, speculation. That's what makes it amazing. That's the fun yeah. part. But yeah, and then at the end of that episode, uh, hippopotamus. Call me. So. Oh, yeah. man. Hippopotami are terrible. Yeah, we're we cut the recording before Christmas. I said this. I'm really hoping it's an undead hippopotamus just because that oh. would be ridiculous. I, I just don't want to bonuses. fight an undead hippopotamus. It just sounds ridiculous Oh, I do, because then awesome. I get a bonus. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really hoping that I'll just get a high initiative and I'll cast Calm Animal and we'll be moving on with our lives. Yeah. They do have a special ability that's going to really come into play here, so I'm looking forward to this. Oh, my. Oh, yeah. He's going to grab someone and pull them under. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just have a little. uh, I don't think hippos death roll. I think they just. No, they just snap you you in half with their gigantic jaws. Yeah, fun fun side note, though. Hippos single handedly responsible for the largest number of animal attacks in Africa. Yes, they are. They're herbivores. They're super territorial. They're super territorial. Especially when uh, riled up by supernatural call pulses. Yeah. Also, if their babies are around, oh. Let's yep. hope that oh, there's yeah, not that, a baby hippopotamus. That's what I'm wondering if we like we floated over the baby and it like made a noise and now mom was like, oh my god! Well, they're not <laughs> marine creatures. They wouldn't be underwater, so they do yeah. spend a lot of they time float underwater. around with just their little like. The little yeah, but if we put a boat over a baby hippopotamus, we no, would but have sometimes felt. they like go to the bottom <laughs> and they chill down there and then they float back up. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's they possible. can hold their breath for like yeah, a they really ridiculous long, long time. I think, in, massive I think in Pathfinder they can do oh, so nice. I think yeah. they can stay underwater for like 10 minutes at a time. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Ridiculous. Uh, still, that's weird. I don't on particularly hot days, it's they deep like... River. It's a big chill. river. Yeah. Uh, well, the, I feel like it's shallow and wide. The section that you guys are in, it doesn't really get much deeper than about 20 feet. Yeah, but yeah, I that's mean, still the, pretty the main parts of the river, you can sail big. You can sail a normal ship down. Yeah. But yeah, and then uh, that's calm where animals. we're going to be starting. It's going to be fine, guys. With potentially calm a calm animal. Animals. Maybe it's the uh, the one with the well-timed spell part two. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Here's open. All right, moving on to some listener emails. Yeah. We have a couple of those. The first one is from Heidi and Kermaga. You remember Heidi? Hey, Heidi. Yes, Heidi. we remember Heidi. She says... Thanks for writing back. Uh, looking at future APs, I'd be stoked if you did the Whispering Tyrant, so like Tyrant's, Tyrant's Grasp. Grasp. It sounds so freaking good. Although I was under the impression it was kind of it kind of acted as a third part of a Usulov trilogy. Uh, wouldn't that make it harder to do in podcast form? Is there a third? I Usulov? think Strange Aeons. Strange Aeons. Oh, Carrying Crown. Strange Aeons. Because um, you're in Usulov and but Strange Aeons doesn't really seem to be related to the Whispering Tyrant. I I would say that it probably ties in directly with. Carrying Crown. See, it would so. be hard for us to run as a pod if there are nods to Carrying Crown just because we played Carrying Crown. And so those references wouldn't make as much sense to the audience. Yeah, it, I well, feel like there would have be, to, you know. I feel like there would be too much. Oh, and in, the, in our Carrying Crown game, this happened exposition to make that stuff make sense. For the ones that they've done previously that have been kind of like sequel esque, are they well tied in like that, or are they more like kind of loosely tied? Shattered Star is the first one that is kind of a true sequel, and it ties in 
directly to the events of Rise of the Rune Lords, Curse of the Crimson Throne, and somewhat indirectly to the events of Second Darkness. And Return of the Rune Lords ties in really, really tight. I mean, I I would expect it to tie in really tight because of it being so Rune Lord focused. So it really maybe depends on how they've done the integration. And there are a lot of little interesting tie-ins between the adventure paths that if you played them in you know, sequential order. And um, we're still focused on Mummy's Mask, so we got a little time before we had to worry about that. synopsis of our carrying ground adventure. I find myself thinking up all sorts of questions for you guys. Yeah. Um, certain rules give folks a bonus to attack or defense against certain creature types. For instance, dwarves get a racial bonus against giants, but it loses that bonus against something like an undead giant because the creature type is no longer giant, but undead. How does it make sense that they lose the bonus in that situation, especially against the kind of undead that retain their intelligence? Okay, so if a their types changed, yeah, but the well, t- I, well, I think she's saying in an in world in the world view of it. Like I think a lot of favored enemy is one of those. I love rangers. Rangers. Uh, I think rangers are now my second favorite class because I freaking love inquisitors. But I love rangers. I think a lot of the rangers' favored enemy is not only. I know the anatomy of this creature because that's basically what the rogue does is I know where to stab this thing to hurt. Rangers also know how an enemy moves, Mm -hmm. how they're going to react. The whole dwarven training against giants is they know how what types of swings giants do and how giants step to be able to dodge them more effectively. It's not just a this thing's bigger than me so I can get out of the way. It's they've trained specifically against giants. And when something becomes undead, its physiology actually changes. You know, a skeletal frost giant or a zombie frost giant will move differently than a regular frost giant or a living frost giant. When they're intelligent undead, it's a little odd. Okay, a skeletal champion frost giant. They Maybe still you have should the same still get instincts. your bonus. But at the same time, you can also think that without the muscles and everything else, that giant might be potentially moving faster or swinging itself in a different way. To a point that the dwarven training would no longer apply would be how I would justify it. Although yeah. Heather is correct that I mean, when it boils down to it, it's just it's just the creature's type has changed. It's changed, and yeah. that's just the way the rules work. But I get I get I it get because I I constantly run into things in role playing games in general where I'm like that makes no sense. I think I made it make sense for most <laughs> for most cases, except for when they're intelligent and not change that different in like an, a vampire yeah i mean other than the much. fact that they're stronger and faster yeah. so maybe it's just you can't react as fast as this now enhanced version of this is maybe i would think it honestly makes less sense that it applies across the board to giants where it's you get a dodge bonus from everything from ogres to cloud giants yeah that's so weird right because um, they vary in strength mm-hmm. and movement and but i guess the i guess the dwarven training school is really good against yeah, it's right. it's all like, types you know, of giants it's well, also, if you you're gonna get real nitpicky about that you're gonna have to start getting nitpicky about favorite enemy in the same way oh you sure. get, you get plus two against all undead i mean yeah like how you see and especially when you don't make the knowledge roll to know what kind of undead it is yeah, how are so you able to do that i think it's for simplicity's sake for the mechanics it's that's how they break it down well yeah um next question more for fun do you ever use house rules yes uh well I use a collection of optional rules. I'm actually, I will be putting out a, a post going over a lot of these house rules, but really the big ones are, we use the background skills, which is an alternative rule from Pathfinder and Chained. Mm-hmm. Love that rule. Um, yeah. I do 25 point point by instead of 20 point point by because just I honestly find it just keeps people from dump statting. Uh, but I don't usually house rule game mechanics. Um, yeah, I mean, we used to, we used to have the, uh, before they 
they kind of FAQ'd how to make black tentacles work faster. We never allowed black tentacles. Yeah, the difference between 3.5 and Pathfinder black tentacles makes the spell. I, I would ban the occasional spell like that, or uh, and this might start a bit of a, a war out there, instant enemy and a number mm-hmm. of those other spells. If it's where, banned in society, Rick doesn't usually let us yeah, play it that's actually, yeah, on the table. Yeah. Yeah, if it's not society legal, then I don't usually allow it. It's almost on a case-by-case basis. So yeah, I mean, really our only home rules are we use a couple of the Unchained rule sets. Yeah. I'm also curious if you're planning to go to any conventions this year. Yeah, actually, Heather and I are going to be at PaisoCon 2019. So if you happen to... Unfortunately, uh, I know that Heidi is from the... Sweden, uh, really. Yes, so... Uh, unfortunately, we are not going to be attending any international conventions as much as we would love to get to go to like PaisoCon UK or for our Australian listeners, we would love to go to PaisoCon uh, down in Australia. Just stay there forever. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, PaisoCon is a lot of fun. Like it's it, if you haven't ever gone to PaisoCon, go. Yeah, it's, it's fun. a heck of a lot of fun. The, the banquet dinner is always my favorite part. Oh, definitely do the banquet dinner. That is so so much fun to get to. Uh, you get a table and it's just, but the Paizo staff are all at the different tables. So yeah. you get a chance to meet somebody at Paizo, have a dinner with them, you know, kind yeah. of chat with them. We sat yeah. with Adam Daigle last year and found out he's from Texas. We yeah. uh, all talked yeah. about Texas for like 20 minutes. Texan people <laughs> gravitate <laughs> toward each other. Yeah, we've, what we uh, do. we've met a, a bunch of good people. Actually, everybody at Paizo is amazing. But, you know, we personally have met and had dinner with a couple of different people from the years that we've gone. So highly recommended. Yeah. So, yeah, if you see Heather and I at PaizoCon, be sure to stop us and say hi. I will be super awkward. I'm sorry. I'm apologizing for that right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of an introvert. So sorry in advance. I will say hi to you. <laughs> I mean, I'll say hi and it'll be real awkward and then I'll run and hide behind Rick. So, you know, it's fine. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so hope to see you there, Heidi. But I know Seattle is a long, long way. That from is a you. long trip. That's a, yeah. that's a you know extensive flight. Uh, she wraps up with best from Sunny Karamaga. The troll upstairs hasn't been making too much noise today. Oh, that's good. Uh, P.S. Which adventure is that troll from anyway? Uh, so the was that from? the only time that I've run something in Karamaga was when I ran a module called the Seven Swords of Sun. Oh yeah, yep. yeah, that's uh, what it was. That being said, uh, all the stuff pertaining towards trolls is actually something I just added into it because it's something that was featured in the City of Strangers book. So I added it for background flavor to the setting. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so that uh, that wasn't that directly from an adventure, although I will say that there is an adventure in Karamaga. Sweet, Karamaga is so. my favorite town. I was going to say, I love Karamaga. All right. All right. Next email comes from Lauren from a small tree in the Churlwood. Nice. 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 A pleasant place. First of all, great podcast. Love you all. Look forward to every episode on Tuesday. We love you too. Yeah. But for the real meat of the email, Rick, how do you prep this AP? I've mentioned on Twitter that I plan on running a mummy's mask, but the biggest hurdle to overcome is the enormous amount of prep that goes into running an AP. I've run a few Pathfinder Society scenarios and have found it difficult to organize my notes in a way conductive to smooth, uninterrupted action. I frequently have to pause to find a stat block or remember where I noted down the description to read for a certain room. Granted, you have the magic of editing on your side, but in general, it feels like the game is run continuously without much interruption from you to look something up. How do you do it? Do you have any recommendations for how to organize all the info presented to you in an AP? My biggest suggestion for anything as far as as far as my GM prep is concerned, the first book of every Adventure Path volume will have an overview of the entire Adventure Path, just on a two-page spread. 
So be sure to read that and get a general idea. Never feel like you have to read all six volumes before you sit down to start running the game. Before you start running a book, I would suggest reading the entirety of the book. Mm -hmm. But then only really worry about, I usually know that my table here, especially at low levels, can get through three, maybe four encounters in a session. Because they're going to stop, they're going to do some role playing, they're going to do all the rest of that. So I know that I only ever need to prep about three or four encounters. So for instance, in the Tomb of Akintepi, okay, well, I know that I need to prep the scorpion fight at the beginning. And then there's going to be the trap down at the bottom. And then they're either going to go right or left. So I'm going to either need to prep for some scarabs or some dolls. And that's all I really need to know. I know that they're not going to get all the way to the Iron Cobra during one session, Mm -hmm. fighting their way through the Tomb of Akintepi. So a lot of it is just make them manageable bite-sized pieces. That's going to be my biggest suggestion. Other than that, um, I personally find the campaign setting books really interesting reads. So if you can, read the campaign setting books. So a lot of the stuff that I talk about, the Ruby Prince, or I talk about Sothis, or I talk about On, or things like that, aren't actually anything that's in the book that I'm running right now. Mm -hmm. But it helps to make it feel like a larger world. Do they put Um, in there what campaign settings they recommend? Because I remember there was one, they had the Iron Gods, they said specifically, here's a book you want to look at from the campaign setting. Usually the campaign setting book that's relative to the Adventure Path launches usually the same month the AP book does, if they haven't already done one set in that nation. Yeah, the the player guide will oftentimes offer you a list of the hero books that tie back into it so for instance you know not only the osirian book but actually like people of the sands is another book that explores stuff about the the people of osirian and in addition to that if you go to the pathfinder wiki page for the adventure path it will list all six books as well as any of the other books that tie into it that came out at close to the same time. Lastly, the only thing that I would say is if you know that it's a setting, you might try to find real world equivalents to that. So shout out to a podcast that actually has nothing to do with Pathfinder, but I actually listened to the Egyptian history podcast because it, it explains a whole lot of Egyptian lore and the mythology and everything, which translates directly over. So I would love to listen to, like if I was doing something that took place in the land of Lenorm Kings, Viking history podcast. I think we've mentioned this before, but Assassin's Creed Origins has the Discovery yeah. Tour. Yeah. And you can actually buy that separately from the game. So if you're mm-hmm. not into like the Assassin's Creed games, you can get the dis- just the Discovery Tour. I think they're making one for Odyssey, too. Yeah, and they have a... It's It's got, you know, you just run your character through checkpoints, and at each checkpoint, it'll talk to you about a different thing. They talk about the pyramids, they talk about culture, they talk about, How to make know, a mummy, everything. things like that. Yeah, so that's a kind of cool, fun little interactive thing. Open so. up a lot lot of tabs if you run with a laptop yeah. just yeah. like put all your monsters in tabs on a, on your browser so you can just like mm-hmm. switch between tabs that was helpful when and I then just something. close them out mm-hmm. um, you can also have tabs open for like if you have a monster that has something like the constrictability you can have a separate tab open just for the constrict and lastly lauren and i know this i've heard this phrase a lot but i, I really try to live by this even though sometimes it irks me particularly because i'm recording this for a podcast and then i have to listen to it later if i do make any mistakes don't let perfection be the enemy of good Do the best that you can. And to be perfectly honest, even if you kind of screw something up, if you're not being recorded, your players don't necessarily know. Later on, you can just be like, oh, yeah, you remember that one guy that you talked to. And they're like, oh, wasn't this his name? Like, no, no, it was something else. (laughs) None of you are remembering correctly. It's fine. (laughs) Don't let yourself be overburdened with too much prep because you can over prep. And it's best to just make yourself comfortable with the material and have fun. All right. And now it's time to cast a deity. Yay. Who are we, who are we casting? Who are we casting? All right. I'm going to roll. I roll a d20. All right. Jess, go ahead and roll us a d20. I get a 15. 
15. I wonder if that's one we've had before. I don't know. We'll find out. Like we have. We'll just go to the next closest one. Yeah, I'll adjust it. We're fine. So for this after party, we're going to be doing Asmodeus, or Asmodeus, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Asmodeus, uh, the, Asmodeus sounds better. The Prince of Darkness, the God of Contracts, Pride, Slavery, and Tyranny. Asmodeus stands amongst the oldest beings of the multiverse. Fragments of heretical tomes like the Asmodean Monography and the Book of the Damned and the Script of Flies claim that he was amongst those responsible for the creation of the stars, the planets, and the first mortal things, but that his pride led to a conflict over the free will of lesser creatures, sparking a war between order and chaos. The bravery of the goddess Serenre forced him to acknowledge his murderous role in the war, and he abandoned the battlefield, swearing that one day his opponents would understand the true depth of the conflict, a time when he would return and his inferiors would beg for the order he embodies. Asmodeus is most commonly represented as a uh, tall man with red skin, dark hair, and horns. So he's Tim Curry? Uh, not the giant horn- horns, he has like the little dinky horns. <laughs> like a hellboy kind of a horn? Although Tim Curry... Oh, <laughs> it is not one of my top three though because <laughs> i have weird. a different one in mind for tim curry all right i know who i'm going for i mean i immediately know who i'm going for too i don't so. know i have to think now i know who i want to i actually have a i have a good person for once i have it down to three <laughs> i know I'm just, um, <laughs> there's so many good choices for this one i have two so Spice. uh all right i guess jess you're gonna start us out oh sure i am thinking He's kind of a charismatic guy, but he's, you know, obviously also a little sleazy and that he makes some deals with some loopholes type situation. Jason Momoa. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking Michael Fassbender. Ooh. Oh, oh, Fassbender. Ooh, nice I could one. see that. He does All have right. a really creepy smile and laugh. Too. And he's yeah. really <laughs> charismatic. So he can yeah. be really charismatic and friendly, but also kind of terrifying with an edge to it. Oh, Nice. It's not that same actor, but that did make me suddenly realize a different actor too. But okay, <laughs> yeah. No, Michael Fassbender. I really Michael actually Fassbender. like Michael Fassbender. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so for me, uh, I'm gonna go with Tom Ellis, who uh, he's the actor who actually played uh, Lucifer on the show Lucifer. Oh, he is good. Um, he is a f- well. First off, he's fantastically talented, but also kind of embodies that like you know temptation and like sleaziness because he's so personable and so charismatic. That I think that he would be like very good for that whole like yeah you know you just want to sign this contract kind of you know not like a used car salesman but very much like a you know professional con man kind of a thing. Nice. Hmm. Well, I had three, but I think I've decided on one. You have to okay. Pick. Mark Strong. Oh, who's that? Oh, hmm. Mark Strong. <laughs> yes. The first one that always pops to mind is he's the bad guy in the first Sherlock movie. He's in the Kingsman. He's in the Kingsman. Uh, he's Merlin. Merlin. Um, he's the bald, bald one, the techie guy. Yeah. Okay. Because Mark Strong, every movie he's in, he oozes charisma. I mean, yep. he's just yeah, he's, phenomenal. he's really great in the um, the Sherlock. Holmes, but I was the... what I'm picturing is him from Rock and Rolla, where he's <laughs> he's like the gangster guy, but he's wearing a sweater vest. Yes, 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 yes. yes. <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah, I just Mark Strong. He just uh, I love him so much. And because he has donned uh, colorful stuff, I could picture him red. I mean, Ooh. look at him. He was the uh, Sinestro in the really crappy Green Lantern movie. So he can oh, do... The he, can best, he was the best part of the Green Lantern. Yeah, he actually okay. was. He almost saved the Green Lantern movie. Yeah. <laughs> so Mark Strong, that's my vote. All right. Tom Henderson. Oh, my. I was going to go for oh. Tom Henderson. Oh, Tom. He is Tom. very charismatic. I think I'd still go with Mark Strong for mine, though. Ooh. 
It's a tough one. It's just a bunch of British guys. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, for sure. For sure. I don't know if Michael Ellis is British. Uh, no, he's he Irish. Yeah. Thank you. He's British, too. I think so, yeah. It's just a bunch of British guys. No, no. Oh. Michael Fassbender's Irish. Okay, fine. Just a bunch of guys from, from the, the UK. UK. <laughs> Whatever. You don't want to call an Irishman a Brit. Yeah. Well, yes, my, Michael Fassbender is welcome to come and tell Hilson. me off in person, <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, uh, is an yeah, he's from Cardiff, Wales. Oh, he's so, Welsh. Yeah. So we got a bunch of UK well, guys. Well, yeah. yeah, he's so uh, Tom Ellis is technically Welsh. <laughs> okay, so UK. Yep. Yeah, Tom Hiddleston, Tom Hiddleston is an interesting is, pick. You know, I mean, I picture him always a little bit more like mischievous and yeah. less. Uh, but that's probably just because it's been. Taken yeah, but I've seen him in a lot of other stuff other than Avengers. Yeah, with the castle and he's yeah, like the, the brother and there's like a weird thing with oh, the sister uh, and the brother and it's like he oh, crimson, 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 crimson peak and he did a really good job in uh what is it only lovers uh, left a yeah. only lovers left a lot yeah. Yeah. yeah the vampire one mm-hmm. all right well i suppose i'll throw i'll just throw out this this one isn't my actual choice for it but uh it is the one that jessica made me think of and it is my uk choice <laughs> uh, which was jason isaac's Oh, oh he, um, yeah, he was actually on my list. Yeah, too. Jason yeah. Isaac. He, okay. he really delivers. Um, so it's a toss up for him between that or the only non-UK option on this list, but also my favorite depiction of a, uh, a Lucifer-esque figure, Viggo Mortensen. He was yeah. so good. Mm-hmm. He was so good in the prophecy as... Uh, yeah. But honestly, I think I might give it to Jason Isaacs. Jason Isaacs is where I'm at. Jason right Isaacs is where yes. I'm going to throw that I was this in. close yes. to picking Gary Oldman. <laughs> nah, Jason Isaacs <laughs> has Gary Oldman like a high elf. I know. That's yeah. why I picked Mark Strong. <laughs> I, I'm amazed that Jason Isaacs somehow didn't make it into the Lord of the Rings movies, and I don't know how. <laughs> I, d- I, I don't know. They already either. cast all of the elves. Well. <laughs> <laughs> But no, he's again for those of you out there. Uh, you know, he's Lucius Malfoy in the Harry Potter series. Uh, he plays Commander. I think they, they changed his name for the movie, but he played the main villain in the Patriot movie opposite Mel Gibson. Yeah, yeah. yeah. he's very yeah. good at playing bad guys. And he just he was the creepy lieutenant in Event Horizon too. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he just has that. Uh, he has a whole lot of charisma, but kind of a, like a menacing charisma yeah. to him. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. mm-hmm. and, I'm on. I'm on. And what I would I would consider just because of the whole god of contracts, pride, slavery, and tyranny, he always looks down his nose at everyone around him. <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah. So See, that's, I was all for Tom Hendelson because he's like my favorite. But then you said Jason Isaacs, and now my brain's like, ooh. <laughs> See, and I put Jason Isaacs and Mark Strong kind of in the same category like they were both mark like, strong is a little more friendly to be honest to, i don't know because that depends on there, the mark though, strong uh, gorham to, to um, all of our uk fans out there though we're not saying that by definition no, some of my favorite actors are british actors. no these are my favorite yeah. people they're amazing actors so yeah, gonna, civil intimidation i'm gonna give it to rick and go with jason yeah, isaacs me too. yeah me three Mine, but I do I like know. Jason Isaacs. Yeah. So. Mark, Jason Isaacs. Mark Strong can be somebody else. All right, I get one. <laughs> Jason Isaacs is so pretty good. That's exactly what I was looking for, and I couldn't quite get it, and I landed on Michael Fassbender instead. And he was on my list, too, and I was like, dang. All right, so dang. Jason Isaacs is Asmodeus. Jason Isaacs. I, I'm surprised nobody I'm, picked Mads for that one. That was my second choice. He's after too Tom chaotic. Wilson. Like, yeah. Mads is a trickster god. Like, if he's a god. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. I already picked Mads Did for something. I we pick Mads for something in almost every single yeah. one of these, and Mads. he never gets it's picked. Like Mads. Jason it's I didn't actually mean Jason Momoa for this role, but I think we have to mention Jason Momoa at every episode. Yeah, Jason Momoa is great. We will put him somewhere. I don't know. Yeah. As he, he will be something because yes. I love Jason Momoa. All right. Well, then I think we're gonna call it a uh, a day with the after party here. So, good luck with your adventuring, and reach out to us with questions. Bye bye. Thank you. Have fun.
Hello, Pat Folk and Rather Lala. No, not words. <laughs> la 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 la. La la la. la, la, la.